Voila! In view, a humble vaudevillian veteran, cast vicariously as both victim and villain by the vicissitudes of fate. This visage, no mere veneer of vanity, is a vestige of the Vox Populi, now vacant, vanished. However, this valorous visitation of a bygone vexation stands vivified and has vowed to vanquish these venal and virulent vermin, vanguarding vice and vouchsafing the violently vicious and voracious violation of volition. The only verdict is vengeance, a vendetta held as a votive not in vain, for the value and veracity of such shall one day vindicate the vigilant and the virtuous. <laughs> Verily, this vicious of verbiage veers most verbose, so let me simply add that it's my very good honor to meet you, and you may call me V. Are you like a crazy person? I'm quite sure they will say so. Every year on the 5th of November, people mark the anniversary of the failure of the gunpowder plot, in which 13 men plotted to blow up the Houses of Parliament in London in the hope of killing the Protestant King James I and VI. But how much is known about Guy Fawkes, the conspirator most closely associated with the foil scheme? This is the story of Guy Fawkes, the gunpowder plot, and V for Vendetta. This is Toys R Us. First, the overture. All of my Hilarious Hellions, how happy I am to have you here to hear the history of yet another huge aspect of the happiest hope-filled part of life, childhood. My name is Richard Hunt, and with me once again is my cousin and co-host, Brian Muth. Hey everybody. Brian, today yes, we are going to be discussing everyone's favorite Antifa. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. Guy Fox. That being said, are you ready to hear why the gunpowder treason should never be forgot? Uh, because fuck fascists? Absolutely. Yeah. We start our story in 1570. That's a long time ago. A real long time ago. Guy Fox was born in 1570 in Stonegate, York. He was the second of four children born to Edward Fox, a proctor and advocate of the Constitutory Court at York, and his wife Edith. Ooh, Guys, Edith. Edith. Uh, come on there, Edith. Just <laughs> all in the family, but it's completely like snobby. Old Englishy. Yes, snobby yes. old English. Yes. <laughs> Edith Jefferson. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, fuck. Thou art a jive-ass turkey. Oh. Mm. Like, okay. Thou art. Mm. 
Guy's parents were regular communicants of the Church of England, as were his paternal grandparents. Ah. His grandmother, born Ellen Harrington, was the daughter of a prominent merchant who served as Lord Mayor of York in 1536. That sounds like such a baller title, Lord, Lord Mayor. Mayor of York. It's like, Lord Mayor of York. It's like, whoa, fuck, okay, step back. Mm. Like, realistically, it's not even really much of a title. Yeah, it's, yeah. That's just like, just like, dude. Let me shove two things together. I'm Lord... But I'm also oh, mayor. But I'm also the mayor. So I well, I didn't vote for you. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, guys, mother's family were recusant Catholics, and his cousin Richard Cowling became a Jesuit priest. Ooh, wow! I know. Look at that. Guy was an uncommon name in England, but may have been popular in York on account of a local notable, Sir Guy Fairfax of Steeton. Wow. I feel like, like everybody's like names people. are so different. Just, not even just different, like completely involved. Yeah. Like so you got Jeff Bezos, you got Bill Gates, and then you got like freaking Lord Admiral whatever the yeah, fuck. Lord Admiral Akbar. <laughs> Lord Admiral Allahu Akbar. Oh god. Rest in peace. R.I.P. Fishdeer. Well, at least it, the son it was is a trap. His son is in this one. I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. You see him in the trailer. Looks just like his father. Chip off the old fish stick. Oh, man. Is that racist? I don't think that's racist. Can you be racist against fish? <laughs> <sighs> just like, lock the fucking door. There's a trout on the other side of the street. Lock the door. Lock the fucking door. Roll him up. <laughs> oh, my God. Just like... Yeah, yo, that's a whole school of fish. Lock the fucking doors. <laughs> Lock the fucking doors. Right. Oh. Okay. Seal the hatch. Oh my god. I'm trying to think of uh some sort of all lives matter thing for fish. <laughs> hmm. And it's always the sharks that that have that bumper sticker, all fish matter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. Even though sharks, for most accounts, aren't even really as bad as they're made out to be. Right. They're just fucking hungry killing machines. Yeah, it's just... Hey, man, that's just how God made them. <laughs> this is fucking... God don't make mistakes. Redneck fish. <laughs> just a redneck fish with, like, a confederate flag. <laughs> but the stars are starfish. Yeah. <laughs> just like, hey, man, see the stars and bars. Hey. What? The South Seas will rise again. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, That's fuck. fucking gold. What What would be, like, the KKK equivalent of fish? <laughs> <laughs> the flay, flay, flay? Oh, my God. The flay, flay, flay. <laughs> That's too much. Mm. That's too fucking much. Uh... The date of Guy Fawkes' birth is unknown, but he was baptized in the church of St. Michael Way Belfry on 16th of April. 16th of April. 16th of April. Uh, as the customary gap between birth and baptism was three days, he was probably born about 13th of April. In 1568, Edith had given birth to a daughter named Anne, but she died aged about seven weeks Eesh. in November of that year. So, Guy Fox is just coming out the gate. Yeah, fucking he's... Fucking hating November. He's yeah. Like, mm, 
He's like, man, fuck November. <laughs> November is like the Sunday of months. It really is. It's like it's it there. Is. It's like, you know, the year's winding down. It's like, you know that fucking January's right around the corner, just ready to yeah. fucking smack you yeah. in the dick. December would be Monday because you have so much fucking shit to do. Oh, God, yeah. Fucking Mondays. I hate Mondays. Sunday, you get, like, the big, delicious meal, yeah. and then you go to sleep because the it's not out. And, and then Monday's like, yeah, I'm here now, motherfucker. <sighs> Got a lot of shit to do. Yeah. Like, uh, I do have a lot of shit to do. For, it's not. For me, I always notice that, like, if we're going to make an analogy, I always called... Uh, Halloween, the top of the roller coaster. Because it's like, it's all downhill from there for the rest of the year. It's just bang, bang, bang. Yeah, and then there's a few, like, two moments of like, okay, we're back up here. Yeah, and then, and the rest uh, the fuck. Yeah, not fucking good. Yeah, not so Guy Fox is on the right track, you know, fucking hating on November. Yeah, he really is. October for life. October for fucking life. She bore two more children after Guy, another Anne. Boy, She's that's like, weird, right? I mean... Yeah. Uh, and, you know, people the... grieve differently. Yeah, I get that. But, but if I had a child die, it wouldn't be like... Oh, yeah, you're going to be Anne, too. Anne the second. Yeah. <laughs> Although, would it be Anne the second? Because... The baby's so nice, she named it twice. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fuck, I'm sorry. It's too far. Oh, see now, I never know. It's, it's that line, man. I, I just tend to just waltz right over it. Yeah, that was you fucking hoisted your big ass up and pole vaulted over it. <laughs> the name's so nice, you named it twice. Wow. Uh, sorry. There's also Elizabeth, born in 1575. And both of them were married in 1599 and 1594, respectively. Oh. In 1579, when the guy was eight years old, his father died. Jeez. His, Don't tell me. In November. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't say. say. Uh, mm-hmm. But I wouldn't put it past it. Yeah. Uh, his mother remarried several, several years later to the Catholic Dionysus Bainbridge. Or Dennis Bainbridge of Scotton Harrogate. <laughs> Good lord. I mean, he might not even be a lord, but fucking, still. Here's the head. They just have a big spinning wheel with random fucking words on it. <laughs> they're like, okay, roll the dice. Um, whatever number comes up on the die is how many names you get. Dude, it's like. <laughs> so you roll it. You fucking spin the wheel. Yeah, yeah. They're like, okay. Sir, I I have I have five. Okay, so pick your name. Sir, choose from this column. Sir, High Count of Suffolk. <laughs> what? Uh, I mean Higginbottom. Oh, Higginbottom. Hmm. Unique. Unique. It's like the OG version of like Bear Grylls, like Antelope yeah. Stairmaster. Yeah, Antelope Stairmaster. You just there's a there's a like. A jury of your peers holding up, like, Olympic numbers. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> Trying to... You're like, ah. Taking out numbers for names. Higginbottom, huh? Hmm. Mm, okay, okay. Let me give you an eight for that. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. That's a solid choice. What is it, fucking Britain's Got Talent, but it's just fucking names? <laughs> yeah. Your lordship, 
Oh my god. Dennis Bainbridge. Dennis. Uh, Fox may have become a Catholic through the Bainbridge family's uh, recusant tendencies, and also the Catholic branches of the Pullian and Percy families of Scotland, but also from his time at St. Peter's School in York. Ooh. A governor of the school had spent about 20 years in prison for recusancy, and its headmaster, John Pullian, came from a family of noted Yorkshire recusants. The Pullians of, uh, the Pullians of Blubber Houses... <laughs> I'm sorry. What? One more time. The Polians. Yeah. Of? Of Blubber Houses. Okay. Okay. Just wanted to make sure I heard that right. Blubber Houses is what I call my stomach. <laughs> Excuse me. Might I have a crumb for my Blubber House? For my Blubber House. You're like, what the fuck, fuck. did I just say? You heard me. My Blubber House. My Blubber House. Oh, yeah. Okay. It hungers. It hungers. For your touch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, in her 1915 work, The Polneys of Yorkshire, author Catherine Pullian suggested that Fox's Catholic education came from his Harrington relatives, who were known for harboring priests, one of whom later accompanied Fox to Flanders in 1592 to 1593. And one of them ended up in Hawkins, Indiana, Steve Harrington, oh, as the shit. world's best fucking babysitter. Mm. Boom, 1984, true. bitches. 1984, bitches. Uh, Fox fellow students included John Wright and his brother, Christopher, both later involved with Fox in the gunpowder plot. Ooh. And Oswald Teesmund. I was going to say, please say Cobblepot. That'd be too perfect. <laughs> Edward Oldcorn. Oh, okay, okay. And Get Robert Middleton, who became priests. The latter executed in 1601. Ooh. Well... And you know what's funny is like names, last names back then were like based on like, shit about you. Yeah, like right? occupations and whatnot. Edward Oldcorn. <laughs> I don't even want to know because you know where Oldcorn ends up. You know what? Edward Oldcorn was that dude who was like a lazy farmer. Yeah. And always Just picked like, his corn way after really everybody late. else. <laughs> it's like shit's missing from the corn cob because yeah. the crows are just eating it and shit. Because <laughs> fucking old corn. Again. Uh, here's old corn. Fuck that guy. <laughs> oh, everybody hates him for sure. Yeah, no, for real. Nobody fucking likes Edward Old Corn. Yeah. Gonna take my horse to the old corn road. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. After leaving school. Guy Fox entered the service of Anthony Brown, first Viscount Montague. Woohoo! <laughs> mercy! Woo, baby! Yeah! yeah. First, first Viscount Montague. Okay. And what about the Capulets? Right? About the Poppy Capulet in your ass. Damn! Uh, is it Viscount or Viscount? I don't know. I it's Viscount, I, right? Yeah, it could be. Is there an E in there? No. It's probably Viscount. Uh, the Viscount took a dislike to Fox, and after a short time, dismissed him. Please let us know if we fuck that up. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm learning. We're yeah, learning. It's, it's, it's a process. Uh, he was subsequently employed by Anthony Maria Brown, second Viscount Montague, oh. who succeeded his grandfather at the age of 18. At least one source claims that Fox married and had a son, but no known contemporary accounts confirm this. In October 1591, 
Fox sold the estate in Clifton in York that he had inherited from his father. He traveled the continent to fight in the Eighty Years' War for Catholic Spain against the new Dutch Republic, and from 1595 until the Peace of Varennes in 1598, France. Although England was not by then engaged in land operations against Spain, the two countries were still at war, and the Spanish Armada of 1588 was only five years in the past. Man, that Spanish Armada. No one fucking expects him. That's true. He joined Sir William Stanley, an English Catholic and veteran commander in his mid-fifties who had raised an army in Ireland to fight in Lancaster's expedition in the Netherlands. Stanley had been held in high regard by Elizabeth I, but following the surrender of Devonshire to the Spanish in 1587, he and most of his troops had switched sides to serve Spain. Damn. Got him. <laughs> Can't beat him, join him. Yeah, the situation. right? Um, Fox became an Alferez, or junior officer, Ooh. and fought well at the Siege of Calais in 1596, and by 1603 he had been recommended for captaincy. That year, he traveled to Spain to seek support for the Catholic Rebellion in England. He used the occasion to adopt the Italian version of his name, Guido. And in his memorandum, described James I, who became the King of England that year, as a heretic who intended to have all of the Pampas sect driven out of England. He denounced Scotland and the king's favorites among the Scottish nobles, writing, It will not be possible to reconcile these two nations, as they are, for very long. Although he was received politely, the court of Philip III was unwilling to offer him any support. Which it happens. It does. Uh, in 1604, Guy Fawkes became involved with a small group of English Catholics, led by Robert Catsby, who planned to assassinate the Protestant King James and replace him with his daughter, third in line for the succession, Princess Elizabeth. Well, how's that going to work? Isn't there somebody in between them that he has to get rid of, too? Yeah. Not very yeah. not very thorough with that plan yeah. there, huh? Um, Fox was described by the Jesuit priest and former school friend Oswald Tesimond as pleasant of approach and cheerful of manner, opposed to quarrels and strife, loyal to his friends. He also claimed Fox was a man highly skilled in the matters of war, and that it was this mixture of piety and professionalism that endeared him to his fellow conspirators. The author, Antonia Frazier, describes Fox as a tall, powerfully built man with thick reddish-brown hair, a flowing mustache in the tradition of the time, and bushy reddish-brown beard. Have you ever heard of a mustache be described as flowing? No, I was just going to say that. That's weird. Um, I don't know. It's like the only kind of flowing mustache I could think of is like maybe like a Fu Manchu. Mm-hmm. That's that's true. That's that's what I think of when I think maybe a flowing mustache. Never heard of it described as that. No. Thing. No. no. Flowing. Uh, and that Guy Fox was a man of action, capable of intelligent argument as well as physical endurance, somewhat to the surprise of his enemies. So basically, like, this guy's a fat motherfucker, but damn. Yeah, he, he can fuck throw shit down. up. Um, the first meeting of the five central conspirators took place on Sunday, May 20th, 1604, at an inn called the Duck and Drake. Oh man, they are really, they're, they're taking a long time to plan this out. They're really fucking hard, but hey... Hey, got to get your ducks in a row. <laughs> I knew I'll, it was coming and I'm still uh, disappointed. I'll see myself out. Um, 
it's it's sad that they took this long to plan this shit and it just failed anyway. Yeah. Uh, the Duck and Drake was in the fashionable Strand District of London. Ooh. Catsby had already proposed at an earlier meeting with Thomas Wintour and John Wright to kill the king and his government by blowing up, blowing up the Parliament House with gunpowder. Wintour, who at first objected to the plan, was convinced by Catsby to travel to the continent to seek, to- seek help. Wintour met with Constable of Castile, the exiled Welsh spy Hugh Owen. Ooh. That's just like, if you take all of Hugh Grant's movies and yeah. replace him with Owen Wilson. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Two, two weddings and a... Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and Sir William Stanley, who said that Catsby would receive no support from Spain. Owen did, however, introduce Wintour to Fox, who had by then been away from England for many years, and thus was largely unknown in the country. Wintour and Fox were contemporaries. Each was militant and had first-hand experience of the unwillingness of the Spaniards to help. Winter told Fox of their plan to do some what in England if the peace with Spain helped us not. And thus, in April 1604, the two men returned to England. Huh. Winter's news did not really surprise Catsby, despite positive notes from the Spanish authorities. He feared that the deeds would not answer. Just stringing them along. That's exactly, that's exactly it. What so, the fuck? One of the conspirators, Thomas Percy, was promoted in June 1604, gaining access to a house in London that belonged to John Winyard, Keeper of the King's Wardrobe. Ooh, now that's a title. Yes! (laughs) Keeper of the King's Wardrobe. Gotta get those mothballs and make sure they don't get eaten. Yeah, fuck moths. Yeah. Fucking hate moths. Big time. Big time. I'll punch the Mothman right in the dick. You're in the face. Moth- Mothman has nards. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Fox was instilled as a caretaker and began using the pseudonym John Johnson. <laughs> Servant to Percy. <laughs> wow, John guy incognito. <laughs> this is John Johnson. Hi, I'm John Johnson. Like, Bongiorno. Yeah, Bongiorno. I'm John Johnson. What is that accent? Uh, Italian. <laughs> I come from Gorlami. <laughs> Gorlami. The contemporaneous account of the prosecution, taken from James Wintour's confession, claimed that the conspirators attempted to dig a tunnel beneath uh, Winyard's house to Parliament. Although this story may have been a government fabrication, as no evidence for the existence of a tunnel was presented by the prosecution, and no trace of one has ever been found. Hmm. Fox himself did not admit the existence of such a scheme until his fifth interrogation, but even then he could not locate the tunnel. Ah, loose lips, sink ships, man. He's but, I a... mean, interrogations back then were not just like, tell me where he is! Yeah. It's, let me break every single one of your fucking fingers yeah. twice somehow. Yeah. And he made it to five interrogations. That's baller status. Um, If the story is true, however, by December 1604, the conspirators were busy tunneling from their rented house to the House of Lords. They ceased their efforts when, during tunneling, they heard a noise from above. Fox was sent out to investigate and returned with the news that the tenant's window was clearing out a 
nearby Undercroft, directly under or directly beneath the House of Lords. The plotters began to lease the room, which also belonged to John Winniard. Unused and filthy, it was considered an ideal hiding place for the gunpowder the plotters planned to store. Nice. According to Fox, 20 barrels of gunpowder were brought in at first, followed by 16 more on the 20th of July. On the 28th, however, the ever-present threat of plague delayed the opening of Parliament until Tuesday, November 5th. Lousy plague. (laughs) Yeah, fucking plague. Um... I can't hear the phrase ever present. Football player rapist? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not just you. Okay. Every time. Yeah. Then there was the ever present football player rapist. They were all in love with dying. They were doing it in Texas. Holly caught a bullet, but it only hit his leg. Well, it should have been a better shot. Got him in the head. They were all in love with dying. They were drinking from a fountain that was pouring like an avalanche coming down the mountain. I don't mind the sun sometimes, the images it shows. I can taste you on my lips and smell you in my clothes. Cinnamon and sugary and softly spoken lies. You never know just how you look through other people's eyes. In an attempt to gain support in May 1605, Fox traveled overseas and informed Hugh Owen of the plotter's plan. At some point during this trip, his name made its way to the files of Robert Cecil, 1st Earl of Salisbury. Ooh. 1st Earl of Salisbury. Steaks. Ooh, baby. Get that shit between some soft-ass white bread. Ooh, baby. Ooh. That's the good stuff. Damn. That's the good good. Got that gravy to dip that shit in. Ooh. Too good. Yeah. Robert Cecil, first Earl of Salisbury, delicious, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, employed a network of spies across Europe. One of those spies, Captain William Turner. Wait, what? Like, Bootstrap Bill? Yeah. Hmm. May have been responsible. Although the information he provided to Salisbury usually amounted to no more than a vague pattern of evasion reports and included nothing which regarded the gunpowder plot. On April 21st, he told how Fox was to be brought to, or brought by Tesman to England. Fox was a well-known Flemish mercenary and would be introduced to Mr. Catsby and honorable friends of the nobility and others who would have had arms and horses in readiness. So they knew this motherfucker was a, a bad motherfucker. Yeah, they're like, oh, fuck. Turner's report did not, however, mention Fox's pseudonym in England, John Johnson. And <laughs> <laughs> did not reach Cecil until late in November, well after the plot had been discovered. It is uncertain when Fox returned back to England, but he was back in London by late August 1605, when he and Wintour discovered that the gunpowder stored in the Undercroft had been decayed. Ah. <sighs> More gunpowder was brought into the room, along with firewood to conceal it. Fox's final note in the or final role in the plot was settled during a series of meetings in October. He was to light the fuse and then escape across the Thames. Simultaneously, a revolt in the Midlands would help to ensure the capture of Princess Elizabeth. Acts of regicide were frowned upon, and Fox would there would therefore head to the continent, or yeah, continent, where he would explain that the Catholic powers. No, explain to the Catholic powers his holy duty to kill the to kill the king, and his retinue. A few of the conspirators were concerned about a fellow Catholics who would be present at the Parliament during the opening. 
On the evening of October 26th, Lord Monteagle received an anonymous letter warning him to say, or warning him to stay away and to retire yourself in your county. <laughs> Once you may expect the event in safety for, they shall receive a terrible blow this Parliament. Well, that's kind of telegraphing your your intentions, but yeah. I mean, who's to say that that guy wouldn't be like, "Hey, yo, look at this note I got." They fucking believe this shit. Fuck the shit away. Look at these guys. Fucking guys. Despite becoming quickly aware of the letter informed by one of Montego's servants, the conspirators resolved to continue with their plans, as it appeared that it was clearly thought to be a hoax. So basically, they were like. Yeah, yeah, get out of here. Fuck this shit. Get, get, get the fuck out of here. Um, Fox checked the Undercroft on October 30th and reported that nothing had been disturbed. Montego's suspicions had been aroused, however, and the letter was shown to King James. The king ordered Uh-oh. Sir Thomas Nevitt to conduct a search of the cellars underneath Parliament, which he did in the early hours of November 5th. Fox had taken up his station late on the previous night, armed with a slow wa- or a slow match and a watch given to him by Percy, because he should know how the time went away. Which is just a poetic way of saying, you should know what time it is. Yeah. He should know how the time went away. Alright. Schmancy. Alright. <laughs> he was found leaving the cellar shortly after midnight and rested. Inside... The barrels of gunpowder were discovered hidden under piles of firewood and coal. Fox gave his name as John Johnson and was first interrogated by members of the king's privy chamber, where he remained defiant. When asked by one of the lords what he was doing in possession of so much gunpowder, Fox answered that his intention was to blow you Scottish beggars back to your native mountains. Damn. (laughs) Okay. Uh, He identified himself as a 36-year-old Catholic from Netherdale in Yorkshire and gave his father's name as Thomas and his mother's name as Edith Jackson. Wounds on his body, noted by the questionnaires, he explained as the effects of, what is this, pleurisy? Yeah. Yeah, pleurisy. Fox admitted his intention to blow up the House of Lords and expressed regret at his failure to do so. His steadfast manner earned him the admiration of King James, who described Fox as possessing a Roman resolution. Oh, damn. James' admiration did not, however, prevent him (laughs) from ordering on November 6th that John Johnson be tortured to reveal the names of the co-conspirators. He directed that the torture be light at first, referring to the use of manticles, but more severe if necessary, authorizing the use of the rack. Ooh. Only rack I want is of ribs. Yeah. The gentler tortures are to first be used unto him at sec per gratis ad ima tenditur. And so by degrees, proceeding to the worst. Yeah, that makes sense. Gotta, gotta soften him up first. Yeah. Fox was transferred to the Tower of London. The king composed a list of questions to be put to Johnson, such as, as to what he is, for I can never yet hear of any man he knows him, or any man that knows him. <laughs> I know a lot of people. Yeah, but nobody knows you. It's just the way I want it. When and where he, or when and where he learned to speak French, and if he was a papist, who brought him up in it? 
The room in which Fox was interrogated subsequently became known as the Guy Fox Room. <laughs> Dude, imagine being so hardcore you get a, a room named after you. Yeah. A be, imagine being tortured so hardcore <laughs> that you get a room, get a, named, a, after a room you. named after you. In the Tower of London. Fucking crazy. That is nuts, but in like the best way. Sir William Wad. <laughs> oh, Billy Wads. Lieutenant of the Tower supervised the torture and obtained Fox's confession. He searched his prisoner and found a letter addressed to Guy Fox. To Wad's surprise, Johnson remained silent, revealing nothing about the plot or its authors. Dude, he's hardcore. Yeah. On the night of November 6th, he spoke with Wad, who had reported to Salisbury he, Johnson, told us that since he undertook this action he did, every day pray to God he might perform that which might be for the advancement of the Catholic faith and saving his own soul. According to Wad, Fox managed to rest through the night despite his being warned that he would be interrogated until I had gotten the inward secret of his thoughts and compliances. Damn. His composure was broken at some point during the following day. The observer Sir Edward Hobie remarked, Since Johnson being in the tower, he beginneth to speak English. Fox revealed his true identity on November 7th, and told his interrogators that there were five people involved in the plot to kill the king. He began to reveal their names on November 8th, and told how they intended to place Princess Elizabeth on the throne. His third confession on November 9th implicated Francis Tresham. Following the Rodolphi plot of 1571, prisoners were made to dictate their confessions, before copying and signing them, if they still could. <laughs> if, they, if their fingers and hands hadn't been yeah. broken severely. Yeah. Although it is uncertain if he was tortured on the rack, Fox scrawled signature um, bears testament to the suffering he endured at the hands of its interrogators. And I'll put a picture in the show notes. Yeah. Because it's like, it, it looks like you're trying to sign something with your opposite hand. Oh. Like, it bears some sort of semblance to your signature. Yeah. But you're like, something's off here. The trial of eight of the plotters began on Monday, January 27th, 1606. Fox shared the barge from the Tower of Westminster Hall with seven of his co-conspirators. They were kept in the Star Chamber before being taken to Westminster Hall, where they were displayed on a purpose-built scaffold. The king and his close family, watching in secret, were among the spectators as the Lord's Commissioners read out a list of charges. Fox was identified as Guido Fox, otherwise called Guido Johnson. So basically, Italian dick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This fucking Italian dick. Chris, Christmas Rodriguez. <laughs> exactly. Um, he pleaded not guilty, despite his apparent acceptance of guilt from the moment he was captured. He's just like, yeah, I mean, you know what? What the fuck? I don't have anything else to lose. Right. I'm not guilty. The jury found all the defendants guilty, and the Lord Chief Justice, sure, sure, Sir John Popham, pronounced them guilty of high treason. The Attorney General, Sir Edward Coke, told the court that each of the condemned would be drawn backwards to his death by a horse, his head near the ground. Hoo-hoo! They were to be put to death halfway between heaven and earth as unworthy of both. Oh, damn. Just like, fuck. That is, that is old-timey hardcore. Oh, it gets worse. Ooh. Their genitals will be cut off and burnt before their eyes. Ooh. And their bowels and hearts removed. 
They would then be decapitated, and their dismembered parts of their bodies displayed so they might become prey for the fowls of the air. Crow food. Crow food. Fox and Tresham's testimony regarding the Spanish treason was read aloud, as well as confessions related specifically to the gunfighter plot. The last piece of evidence offered was a conversation between Fox and Wintour, who had been kept in adjacent cells. The two men apparently thought that they had been speaking in private, but their conversation was inter- intercepted by a government spy. Ooh. When the prisoners were allowed to speak, Fox explained his non-guilty plea as ignorance of certain aspects of the indictment. On January 31st, 1606, Fox and three others, Thomas Wintour, Ambrose Rookwood, and Robert Keyes, were dragged, you know, drawn, yeah, yeah, from the tower and waddled hurdles to the old palace yard of Westminster, opposite the building they had attempted to destroy. Brutal. His fellow plotters were then hanged and quartered. Fox was the last to stand on the scaffold. He asked for forgiveness of the king and the state, while keeping up his crosses and idol ceremonies, which were Catholic practices. Weakened by torture and aided by the hangman, Fox began to climb the ladder, climb ladder to the noose, but either through jumping to his death or climbing too high so the rope would have incorrectly set, he managed to avoid the agony of the latter part of his execution by breaking his own neck. Oh, good. Good his, for him. His lifeless body was nevertheless quartered, as was custom. Right. His body parts were then distributed to the four corners of the kingdom to be displayed to be displayed as a warning to others to other would be traitors. <laughs> I was just like, oh shit. They didn't that. fuck around back then, man. They did not. On November fifth, sixteen oh five, Londoners were encouraged to celebrate the king's escape from assassination by lighting lighting bonfires, provided that this testimony of joy be carefully done without any danger or disorder. <laughs> Don't blow yourselves up, people. Exactly. An act of Parliament designated each November 5th as the Day of Thanksgiving for the Joyful Day of Deliverance, and remained in force until 1859. Fox is one of 13 conspirators, but he is the individual most associated with the plot. In Britain, November 5th has, vicar- er, no, has, been, has variously been called Guy Fox Night, Guy Fox Day, Plot Night, and Bonfire Night, which can be traced back directly to the original celebration of November 5th, 1605. Bonfires were accompanied by fireworks from the 1650s onward, and it became the custom after 1673 to burn an effigy, usually of the Pope, when heir presumptive James, Duke of York, converted to Catholicism. Jeez, Sinead O'Connor does that and she gets banned from SNL. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. Effigies of other noble figures have found their way to the bonfires, such as Paul Kruger and Margaret, Th- Margaret Thatcher. Although... Although most modern effigies are a fox, the guy is normally created by children from old, old clothes, newspaper, and a mask. <laughs> During the 19th century, guy came to mean an oddly dressed person. While in American English, it lost any pejorative connotation and instead refers to any male person. <laughs> Look at this guy. <laughs> Look at this fucking guy. Look at this fucking guy. Uh, and the plural form can refer to people of any gender. See... You guys. Or use guys. Oh, you fucking guys. Use fucking guys. James Sharp, professor of history at the University of York, has described how uh, Guy Fawkes came to be toasted as the last man to enter Parliament with honest intentions. (laughs) (laughs) Got him. William Harrison Ainsworth's 1841 historical romance Guy Fawkes 
or the gunpowder treason, portrays Fox in a generally sympathetic light, and his novel transforms Fox in the public perception into an acceptable fictional character. Fox subsequently appeared in or appeared as essentially an action hero in children's books and penny dreadfuls such as The Boyhood Days of Guy Fox or The Conspirators of Old London, published around 1905. According to a historian, Lewis Call, Fox is now a major icon in modern political culture, whose face has become a potentially powerful instrument for the articulation of postmodern anarchism in the late 20th century. It's true. Really, it is. I mean, it's taken on a life of its own. I mean, it really now is, I mean, due to its previous historic connotations and with its popular culture, definitely uh, is something, a symbol to galvanize people against, like, oppression. Well, yeah, it's like V says... You can't kill a symbol. That's right. You know? Like, yeah, exactly. Do what you wish, but at yeah. the end of the day... And that's the thing, is like... Even even with these memes being beat to death... Yeah. Like, Jeffrey Epstein has become... Yeah. This symbol that... You're not fucking with... Yeah. The higher-ups in the United States. Yeah. Because this is what will happen. Yeah. You know, like... And it's crazy that it's being, like, memed so hard, given the connotations. Right, yeah. Especially because it's like, the implications are that, that like, he was killed to silence him. Mm -hmm. And it's like, like, holy fuck. Do I think he killed himself? Hell no. No. Do I think he was killed to keep him quiet? Yes, I do. Absolutely. But do I think anything's ever going to come of it? No, probably not. And at the end of the day, it's like people are people are trying to make him like a martyr. But no, yeah, dude was still he's a, a fucking, fucking pedophile. Shit bag. Like, yeah. At the end of the day, he's still a fucking pedophile. He is not a fucking hero. No, at all. What the things he could have done might have been an act of heroism. Yeah. Granted, it it was for it would have been forced. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Like, no, no, no. I'll I'll tell. I'll tell. Yeah, him. like I'll fucking roll on everybody. Exactly. You know. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But at the end of the day... <laughs> this world we live in. <laughs> I know. It's, it's fucking ridiculous. After these messages, we'll be right back. This weekend on November 9th, we are going to be having a charity event. I know we have listeners from everywhere. We wanted to figure out a way to have everyone participate that can't make it. So, starting... With this episode, until the end of November, all proceeds sent to our PayPal, Podcast at gmail.com is the PayPal, will be donated to the Ronald McDonald House charity, as well as the St. Jude's um, Hospital, you know. They take care of so many sick kids and don't charge the families anything so we'd really like to help push that you know so everything that we receive will be donated accordingly so if you'd like to participate you know just let us know if you've donated and we will be doing a large shout out at the end of the month and now back to the show from there we have to 1982 Ooh, 
where we meet up with graphic novel legend. And he is a legend. He is a legend. Alan Moore. And he began slowly rolling out a doozy. His beard? Oh. (laughs) His fucking beard. His fucking beard is epic. It's just like... I I feel like his beard grows with more spite and hatred for anybody that... Yes. Like, people people rag on Stephen King all the time for talking about how how much he doesn't like his adaptations. Right. But Alan Moore is just like... Oh, boy. He's the king of hating his adaptations. He fucking hates everything. I mean, he he even fucking sued to get his name taken off Watchmen. Yeah. And you know what? I actually really like Watchmen, the movie. I think it was a pretty solid adaptation of something that was previously considered unadaptable for film. Yeah. And that's the thing. He, He has to realize some things can only exist in the world of, like, Written fiction. Yes. Correct. Some things just are not going to transfer well from book to TV show or movie. Right. You know, like, some some dialogue, you're like, people definitely don't fucking talk like this. Yeah. But you've come to understand that in the world of comics, people talk a certain way. Yeah. But in movies and TV shows, you're like, no... You kind of have to ground these people as actual people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Written by Alan Moore and illustrated by David Lloyd, with additional art by Tony Ware, V for Vendetta was initially published starting in 1982 in black and white as an ongoing serial in the short-lived UK anthology Warrior. It morphed into a 10-issue limited series published by DC. DC, and I will not be saying DC Comics, Detective Comics Comics? Yes. Uh, (laughs) Subsequent collector editions have typically been published under DC's more specialized imprint, Vertigo. Vertigo, yeah. The story depicts a dystopian and post-apocalyptic near-future history version of the United Kingdom in the 1990s, preceded by a nuclear war in the 1980s that devastated most of the rest of the world. The white supremacist, neo-fascist, outwardly Christio-fascist, and homophobic fictional Norsefire political party. Is that headed by Mike Pence by chance? I mean, it's... (laughs) And what's crazy is, like, Alan Moore hates the V for Vendetta movie. Yeah. Because the Wachowskis, uh, to him, made it a Bush-era parable. Uh, Yeah, I get that. But if your source material is not too far... From what Bush era and now uh, 2.0 with Trump is, you can't be that upset when people are adopting it. Well, right, because, I mean, it's a direct parallel. I mean, it's... uh, Yeah. It's it's unsettling, actually, how how eerily prescient it was. Oh, yeah. And is. Yeah. It's like... It continues to be. You can't can't see uh, a gas fire... And a normal, just natural fire, and be like, no, 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 those, oh, yeah. those are two different things. Yeah, all you see is the fire. Yeah, and he's like, no, no, no. But him, no, he's no. like, no, I know that that one's a gas fire. Yeah, I know it is. Yeah, like, buddy, to everybody else's eyes that don't have this much of a stake in it. Yeah, that's a fucking fire. That that's like everything looks like a nail to a hammer. Exactly. Exactly. Uh. Yeah, so the Norse Fire Political Party. 
which has exterminated its opponents in concentration camps and now rules the country as a police state. <laughs> which, for fuck's sake, man. That's a, it's a fucking terrifying notion. It is. And, and you just, you see us headed that you way. You can see it slipping that way. And much how, like, you don't want uh, idiocracy yeah. to be a documentary. Well, if you stack that against the world of idiocracy versus V for Vendetta, I'll take the dumbasses in idiocracy any day. Yeah. They might be dumb as shit, but at least they're not, like, Malicious. fucking fascists. Yeah. Fucking fascists. Fucking fascists, man. And that's what's so funny is, like, these people that are, like, comparing, like, Antifa to Nazis. It's like, no. It's like, wait a minute. Antifa means anti-fascist. So, wait a minute. You don't like Antifa, so that means you're with the fascists? Well. Because that's what it sounds like. No. Stop. That's not not what I mean at all. Yeah. I like, Yeah, try to do. Somebody the other day was trying to tell me that uh, Antifa is uh, worse than the Proud Boys. In what sense? That the Proud Boys are okay and that Antifa needs to be destroyed. First off, the Proud Boys is just about the worst fucking name. It really is. No, we're the Proud Boys. Yeah. Like, what? Like, whoa, whoa. Whoa. You guys look like you drink craft beer and... Beat your wives. Yeah. Beat your wives or get mad that you don't have wives. Yeah. And it's like... Um... I'm, I'm widely in the camp that your behavior dictates whether or not you're lovable. Yeah. Right? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, the, the, the Venn diagram of incels and Proud Boys. <laughs> you know? It's like, uh, it's a large... It's, it's, a, it, it's a very large connection there. You're There's a like, big overlap. Big time fucking overlap. You're yeah. like, do you, you know what type of fucking person you are, right? Yeah. And, and like, I'm in a group called Shut the Fuck Up Boomer. <laughs> Most Proud Boys, despite the fact they're they're in their, like, 20s to, like, let's say, early 40s, right? Yeah. Are fucking boomers. Essentially. Yeah. They have a lot of that very... It's um, like, if you're ultra-conservative, you toe that boomer line. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, people going after Greta. Yeah. They're like, what the fuck? Bo-. You understand? Like, oh, she's ugly. I'm like, dude, she's like 16. <sighs> fuck off. Yeah, but she's ugly. Okay, why are you even thinking of her as ugly or attractive? Yeah, she's 16, dude. Well, it's like, uh, in certain states, that's a legal age. Nah, yeah. you're just a fucking pedophile. Yeah. Like, I'm in another Facebook group called How Hard Is It to Not Sexualize Children? <laughs> <laughs> people are, well, people will see, like, a swimming suit and be like, that's too sexy for a child. It's like it's a um, two-piece swimming suit. Why do you think it's sexy? Yeah. Can we talk about how you think it's sexy or not sexy? Yeah. You obviously just admitted that you think a child is sexy. Right. You that, don't think anything's yeah. wrong with that? That's fucked up. It's very fucked That's up. That's super fucked up. It's very, very fucked up. 
And they see no issue with it. Back, back in my day, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, back okay, in dude. your day. Back in yeah. your day. Back in my day, we weren't... My favorite thing is like, back in my day, we weren't so offended. And yeah. it was like, back in your day, you had to fight and holler so that somebody a different color than you wouldn't drink from the same yeah. fountain. That's like, yeah. <laughs> you're, you guys are the... You, you're the people that get their fucking panties all wet because you're fucking... Somebody said, happy holidays, not Merry Christmas. Yes. Got your panties in a bunch. So, I'm, I work at Bed Bath & Beyond. Fuck yeah! We're, we're a very... The store that I'm at is, like, the guinea pig store. So we'll get oh. all the new shit feature-wise, like, inside the store before they decide to roll it out to other stores. Okay. Right? We have a... I work in, like, the small appliances hmm. beverage department, right? Ooh, beverages. We have a try-before-you-buy Keurig wall. Okay. So there's, like, I think 20 different, like varieties of coffee you could try. Oh, okay? That's cool. You have a little bit of decaf, a little bit of dark, a mm-hmm. little bit of flavor, a little bit of medium and light roast. Sure. Right? Yeah. This couple comes in the other day. Yeah. And they're like, how are we supposed, how are we supposed to try this one flavor if it's not in this wall? This is, what kind of try before you buy wall is this? Oh, for fuck's sake. And I'm like... Pick one well, of the tw- other 20? Well, he wants to try decaf... But there's only hazelnut decaf down there. I'm like, no, there's a Newman's own decaf as well. Mm-hmm. Well, he wants Green Mountain. Well, tough fucking titties. I'm not gonna <laughs> open. A, I'm not gonna open up a whole box for you to try one fucking thing for you to decide. Well, I don't really like it. Yeah, and you know that's exactly how it would go. Now too. they talked to a coworker before they talked to me, and they asked her, "Can we open up this this box and try this?" She's like, "No, we." Kira used to fit the bill. I fit the bill for that wall. Yeah. Now they don't. So oh. we do. So, we put flavors in there that people will still drink, but they, they don't sell as well, you know? So, okay. it's not like... sure. Yeah. You're wasting anything, really. Right. She tells them no. She she walks away. So, then they figure they, they'll try they you? Me. They ask me. I tell them what the same the thing. What the fuck? She, the, the woman makes a beeline to the customer service desk to complain about both of us to the manager. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's so uh, very Karen of her. Now he comes over and he's like, did they really just get mad at you that you wouldn't open a box for them? I'm like, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, and they, they talked to both of us at separate times <laughs> trying to see if the other one would say something different. He's like, what? He's like, no. He's like, there's plenty of, plenty of stuff to try in this wall. Yeah. Like, we don't have to do this at all. It's free coffee. <laughs> People were like, oh, are you out of milk and creamer? Yeah, we are. Well, it's I w- fucking free coffee. I, would, I wouldn't have dip. even made this cup. Okay, I wish you fucking wouldn't have done. What the fuck? Yeah. The, people people assume that this like it's a fancy like Keurig machine that's in the wall because it's built for businesses. Okay. But people assume it's like a soda fountain, and they dump their fucking cup in the tray. Oh no! But there's not room in that tray, Jeez. so it just spills out the bottom. Ugh. That or like there's a sink behind the desk. Yeah. And I, I try to catch as many people as I can. Do they go behind the desk? No, no, no. But they, I wish they. I would rather have them do that than throw an entire fucking cup of coffee in the garbage can. Are you kidding me? Because then at the end of the night, you got to empty that. I got to empty it. Mm. So I'm like, ah, I, I, the people I miss. I'm like, damn it. There's a fucking sink right here, dude. Right. You're an adult, right? You you're, you're aware of surroundings. <laughs> Dump that shit down the fucking sink. That's what that's for. Right. Not, well, I'm going to throw this whole fucking cup, 10-ounce cup of liquid 
into the garbage can. Scalding hot liquid. Yeah, because not only is the water heated by the curing machine itself, the water comes out of the water line hot. Oh, okay. So you got double the hot. It's crazy hot. People are like, oh, we ran out of sleeves. You don't have sleeves? One time we ran out of lids, and this lady was like, you don't have any lids? I'm like, no, we actually ran out of lids this morning. This is an outrage. What What if I spill on myself while an I'm walking? Outrage. You're, ma'am, you are 65 years old plus. How was your free fucking coffee, lady? Let me ask if, you that. If you spill on yourself, you've had 65 years to perfect not spilling on yourself. <laughs> well, what if I spill on myself? I don't know. Get more coordinated, you old bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Stop spilling on yourself. Stop spilling on yourself. Right. I'm like, okay, yeah, look, I understand it's hot. I, I can't tell you how many adults I've had to say... Well, yeah, just double cup it. If we don't have sleeves, like, double cup it. How hard is that? Are you fucking stupid? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. yes. They are stupid. And and for the most part, people, they understand it's a free thing. Yeah. They can't get mad about it. Yeah. But, uh, this lady came in all the time trying to see if we had organic coffee, and she would wait to talk to people that are new hires. Oh, what a bitch. Yeah. She'd be like, well, can I sample this? My daughter really loves it, but I want to see if I like it too. And back in the day, people would fucking open boxes for this lady mm. until, like, everybody started spreading the word around. And now she mm. has not been back in, like, three months. Good. <laughs> like, don't fucking take advantage of people. Especially on some free shit. See, and then I can't stand people that take advantage of people. There's, like, two two kinds of people in this world. Uh, that I can't stand. Thieves and people who take advantage of people. Yeah. That drives me fucking bananas. It's it's just like, how are you fucking raised? Or I guess lack thereof, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know, man. That's no fucking, it's, not, it's not hard at all to be a good person. No, it, it literally it costs nothing. Nothing. Not, mon- not monetarily and not in even fucking effort to be nice. Right. Right. It's like, Nice is kind of like my default. Yeah. Like, if you come at me like an asshole, you're going to get the oh, asshole yeah. back. Yeah, yeah, But my default is fucking nice. Yeah. Like, people... I know it probably surprised. doesn't sound like that, the, the way I'm, I'm speaking now. But, you now, know, it's but like... You could be an asshole and a nice person. You can You know be. what I mean? Yeah, and I mean, usually I think that working at least somewhat in customer service, that kind of instills that in you. Here's the thing. I, the world would be a better place if everybody had to work a mandatory two years in either retail or food. Agreed. Agreed. If everybody had to have that shoe-on-the-other-foot experience... That's a fucking reality check. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It is a reality check. I've never... I've worked at Walmart for five years, and I thought people were entitled there. Yeah. I have never seen anybody more entitled... Than a middle-aged white woman that can't use an expired coupon. <laughs> I bet. Uh, when I used to work at Kmart, I used to get the expired coupons. So I'm, I'm sorry. Um, most of the time, when Bed Bath & Beyond sends you a coupon, they send it to you, like, like with a three-month out yeah. expiration date. Yeah. So you're telling me that you waited to the last possible minute. Yeah. You noticed that the coupon was expired, because I know you did. They make it in highlighter yellow. Uh-huh. And then you decided... I'm going to try and fucking pull a fast one. At a store level, they will take expired coupons. Oh, Because really? Bed Bath & Beyond bends over backwards for the customers, yeah. which is which is good. You know, that's how, yeah. that's how you keep customers. Yeah. But they redid their online system to where online oh. will not take expired coupons. Okay. 
So I've had I've gone through making an entire order, and then at the end, well, can I use this coupon? Yeah. And then I see it in expiration date. It's like, motherfuck. I'm like, oh, well, the system doesn't take expiration or expired coupons anymore. Yeah. What? You heard? I need to talk to a manager. The managers are not going to fucking do anything for you. Yeah. I'm sorry. They ain't going to side with you. Coupon, it, it literally, you physically cannot override it. Right. It literally would just not work. <laughs> Or people will try to like somehow get an expired or a coupon that has already been used. Oh, like they'll because we just throw them away. So like they'll right. fish it from the trash or something. That and is it, so it won't lame. Let, it won't let you use it even at a store level because it'll say this coupon has already been used. <laughs> and people get so fucking mad. Man, people get mad about the weirdest things, dude. The weirdest shit. Yeah, over a matter of like five cents, yeah. ten cents. Yeah, I had a lady when I worked at Walmart. I was stocking sporting goods, and she opened an air mattress and took the pump out, and I saw her do this. Get the fuck out of here. She comes up to me and asks if she can have a discount because there's no pump. You're like, lady, I watched you take that pump out. I told her that, and she just kind of walked away with her tail between her legs. like, yeah, dude. (laughs) Jesus Christ. If you're going to fucking steal... Be more aware of your, your surroundings. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that, Hey, man, that's Rachel Ghoul's number one rule. Be aware <laughs> of your surroundings. Yeah. I don't get it, man. <sighs> Sorry, tangent. That was big, fun. Big tangent. Big tangent. Um, so the comic, Rufy Mendetta, follows yeah. the story, uh, the story's titular character and protagonist, V. An anarchist revolutionist dressed in uh, dressed in a guy fox mask. As he begins to or he begins an elaborate and theatrical revolutionist campaign to kill his former captors, bring down the fascist state, and convince the people to abandon fascism in favor of anarchy, while inspiring a young woman, Evie Hammond, to be his protege. DC Comics sold more than five hundred thousand copies of the graphic novel in the United States by two thousand six. That's a lot of fucking comics. That's a fucking lot. A lot. Especially because by that point, like, the market for comics now is... Oh, yeah. Way more. Like, people are buying that shit way more. Yeah. Back then, I mean, you gotta figure from the 80s to 2006. Yeah. That's a lot of fucking copies. Yeah. That definitely is. You know? Um, in writing View for Vendetta, Alan Moore drew upon a comic strip idea submission that the DC Thompson screenwriting competition rejected in 1975. The Doll, which involved a transsexual terrorist in white-faced makeup who, br- who fought a totalitarian state during the 1980s. Huh. Years later, Skin reportedly invited Moore to create a dark mystery strip with artist David Lloyd. V for Vendetta was intended to recreate something similar to their popular Marvel UK Night Raven strip in a 1930s noir. They chose against doing historical research and instead set the story in the near future rather than the recent past. I think that was a smart idea. Yeah. 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 I, 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 I've always had a big thing for speculative fiction. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. I love that shit. It's, it's, it's kind of a look into, like, what might be. Yeah. Which is scary. It is. Because a lot of this shit is, like, you have to wonder, like, were they good at just guessing trajectory? Yeah. Did, did they have some kind of look into, like, yeah. the other world? Like, like, some of the shit hits too close to home, you know? You're yeah. Like, 
Like, the Ooh. two best people for that, I think, were, like, Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. Yes. Like, they were so close on so many things. It was ridiculous. It, really? Really? Like, I'm pretty sure they were time travelers. Oh, easily. Yeah. Fucking time lords. Yeah. Um, then V for Vendetta emerged, putting the emphasis on V rather than Vendetta. David Lloyd developed the idea of dressing V as Guy Fox after previous designs followed the conventional superhero look. During the preparation for that story, Moore made a list of what he wanted to bring to the plot, which he, rep- he reproduced in Behind the Painted Smile. Uh, he had like a whole mix of shit he wanted in there. Yeah. Right? He wanted uh, a little bit of Vincent Price's Dr. Phoebes in the Theater of Blood, David Bowie, The Shadow, Night Raven, Batman, Fahrenheit 451, The Writings of the New World's School of Science Fiction, Max Ernest's painting Europe After the Rain, Thomas Pynchon, The Atmosphere of British Second World War II Films, uh, The Prisoner, Robin Hood, and Dick Turpin. Wow, he really nailed that. Like, he, like yeah, he, super well. Like, you can just, you can tick every one of those off yeah. and, and see the influence. Yeah. Which, which is good. Yeah. You know, like, a lot of people try to pay homage, but they do it in, like, way like too very on the nose. Yeah, sloppy, you know? hand-handed. You're like, okay. Yeah. I see what you did there. And sometimes you can appreciate it if it's on shit that, like, is very niche. Yes. You're like, oh, yes. fuck. Like, That's oh, a deep cut. Yeah. Okay. Um... The influence of such a wide number of references has been thoroughly demonstrated in academic studies, above which dystopian elements stand out, especially the similarity with George Orwell's 1984 in several stages of the plot. Yeah. The political climate of Britain in the early 1980s also influenced the work, with more positing that Margaret Thatcher's conservative government would obviously lose the 1983 elections, and that an incoming Michael Foote-led labor government committed to complete nuclear disarmament would allow the United Kingdom to escape relatively unscathed after a limited nuclear war. However, Moore felt that the fascists would quickly subvert a post-Holocaust Britain. Which, yeah. Yeah. V, an anarchist, initially murders members of the fascist government, but as the story develops, Moore deliberately made V's actions very, very morally ambiguous. And who Uh, doesn't like moral ambiguity? Yeah. With the aim, I didn't want to tell people what to think. I just wanted people. I just wanted to tell people to think. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Morris' scenario remains untested. Addressing his historical developments when D- DC reissued the work, he noted, "Naivete can also be detected in my supposition that it would take something as melodramatic as a near-miss nuclear conflict to budge uh, Britain toward fascism." The simple fact that much of the historical background of the story proceeds from a predicted conservative defeat in the 1983 general election should tell you how reliable we are in our roles as Cassandras. <laughs> Which, I mean, fuck. Just think about what 9-11 did. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that was a... I mean, f- forgive the, the cliched term. That was a game changer. Yeah. I mean, like, it, it completely changed everyone's attitude. Everybody. It, it it largely speaks to like the level of xenophobia too now. Yeah, you know? like yeah, absolutely, it does. It really fucking beat into your face 
You better fucking love America. Yeah, love it or leave it. America. Make America great again. Yeah. Like, name me one point ever in time that America was great to begin with. Yeah. I mean, there's just a litany of of horrific things. Yeah. And I mean, it's not just America. I mean, no, it's, 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 it's the world on a whole, but I mean, there's nobody's a fucking angel here. No, not at all. But you know? comparatively, in such a short amount of time, as America has existed. We've ticked off a lot of boxes. A lot. A lot. If we were trying to get a promotion for a job, they'd be like, damn, look at this up and coming. It's like, wow. You've done all of this already? This, these guys are really bucking for a promotion. They've already knocked out slavery and civil rights and, you know, hey, look, women can vote. They are, yeah, they are on top of their shit. Huh. Huh. And then it's like, oh, Oh, all these people have clan robes in their closets. Yeah. They, they literally just dragged and beat that young black man for wolf whistling at a white woman. Uh, so just so 70 years later, she can be like, oh yeah, he didn't wolf yeah. whistle at me. Yeah, I made it up. Fucking God bless America. <laughs> America. Fucking ridiculous, dude. Uh, we have book one, Europe After the Rain. On Guy Fawkes uh, night in London in 19, 1997, a financially desperate 16-year-old Evie Hammond sexually solicits men who, men who are actually members of the state secret police called the Finger. Preparing to rape and kill her, the Finger men are dispatched by V, a cloaked anarchist wearing a mask, who later remotely den- detonates explosives at the Houses of Parliament before bringing Evie to his contraband-filled underground lair, the Shadow Gallery. Fucking A. Evie tells V her life story which reveals her own past as well as England's recent history. During a dispute over Poland in the late 1980s, the Soviet Union and the United States, under the presidency of Ted Kennedy, entered a global nuclear war which left continental Europe and Africa uninhabitable. Although Britain itself was not bombed due to the Labour government's decision to remove American nuclear missiles, it faced environmental devastation and famine due to the nuclear winter. After a period of lawlessness in which Evie's mother died, the remaining corporations and fascist groups would take over England and form a new totalitarian—I totali- always have such a fucking hard time. Totalitarian, totalitarian government, Norse Fire. Evie's father, a former socialist, would be arrested by the regime. Meanwhile, Eric Finch, a veteran detective in charge of the regular police force, the Nose, begins investigating V's terrorist activities. Finch often communicates with Norse Fire's other intelligence departments, including the Finger, led by Derek Almond, and the Head, embodied by Adam Susan, the reclusive government leader who obsessively oversees the government's fate computer system. Finch's case thickens when V kidnaps Louis Prothero, a propaganda broadcasting radio personality, and drives him into a mental breakdown by forcing him to relive his actions as commander of the resettlement camp near Larkhill with his treasured doll collection as inmates. Evie agrees to help V with his next assassination by disguising herself as a child prostitute to infiltrate the home of Bishop Anthony Lilliman, a pedophile priest who V forces to commit suicide by eating a poisoned communion wafer. Oh, damn. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, he, how it's done, folks. He prepares to murder Dr. Delia Surridge, a medical researcher who once had a romance with Finch. Finch suddenly discovers the connection among V's three targets. They all used to work at Larkhill. 
That night, V kills both Almond and Surge, but Surge has left a diary revealing, revealing that V, a former inmate and victim of the Surge's cruel medical experience, experiments, was able to destroy and flee the camp and is now eliminating the camp's former officers for what they did. Baller. Finch reports these findings to Susan and suspects that his vendetta may actually be a cover for V, who he worries may be plotting an even bigger terrorist attack. Well, if you're going to go, go big, right? I mean, Absolutely. Especially book- when fascists are involved. You gotta do it, you know? Book two, This Vicious Cabaret. Four months later, V breaks into Jordan Tower, the home of Norsefire's propaganda department, The Mouth, led by Richard Dascombe, to broadcast a speech that calls on the people to resist the government. V escapes using an elaborate diversion that results in Dascombe's death. Finch is soon introduced to Peter Creedy, the new head of the finger, who provokes Finch to strike him and thus gets sent on a forced vacation. Finger. Finger. At this, all this time, Evie has moved on with her life, becoming romantically involved with a much older man named Gordon. Evie and Gordon unwill, unknowingly cross paths with Rolf's Almond, the widow of the recently killed Derek. After Derek's death, Rose reluctantly began a relationship with Dascombe, but now... With both of her lovers murdered, she for- she is forced to perform demoralizing burlesque work, increasing her hatred of the unsupportive government. Mm. When a Scottish gangster named Allie Harper murders Gordon, eventual Evie interrupts a meeting between Harper and Creedy, the latter of whom is buying the support of, Tharp- of Harper's thugs in preparation for a coup. Uh, Evie attempts to shoot Harper, but is suddenly abducted and then imprisoned. Amidst interrogation and torture, Evie finds an old letter hidden in her cell by an inmate named Valerie Page, a film actress who was imprisoned and executed for being a lesbian. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Uh, Evie's interrogator finally gives her a choice of collaboration or death. Inspired by Valerie, Evie refuses to collaborate, and expecting to be executed is instead told that she is free. Stunned, Evie learns that her supposed imprisonment is in fact a hoax constructed by V Surprise. so that she could experience an ordeal similar to the one that shaped him at Lark Hill. He reveals that Valerie was a real Lark Hill prisoner who died in the cell next to him and that that letter is not a fake. Evie forgives V, who has hacked into the government's fake computer system and started emotionally manipulating Adam Susan with mind games. Consequently, Susan who has formed a bizarre romantic attachment to the computer, is beginning to descend into madness. Yeah, yeah, computer romances don't generally end up well. No, no. Uh, Book three, The Land of Do As You Please. The following November 5th, 1998, Veep blows up the post office tower and Jordan Tower, killing the ear leader, Brian Etheridge. In addition to effectively shutting down three government agencies, the eye, the ear, and the mouth. Creedy's men and Harper's Racking associated... Up. What? Racking them up. You gotta... The whole fucking body. Gotta, gotta dismantle the body, man. Um, v notes to Evie that he has not achieved what he calls the land of do as you please, meaning a functional anarchist society, and considers the current cha- uh, chaotic situation as the interim per- period of land of take what you want. Finch has been mysteriously absent, and his young assistant, Dominic Stone, one day realizes that V has been influencing the fate computer all along. (laughs) Surprise! Which would explain V's consistent foresight. All the while, Finch has been traveling to the abandoned site of Lark Hill, 
where he takes LSD to conjure up memories of his own devastated past to put his mind in the role of the prisoner of, Ar- of Lark Hill. Light V to help him gain an uh, intuitive understanding of V's experiences. So he just goes to a fucking bombed out fucking... <laughs> to trip balls. Yeah, to trip balls. <laughs> Uh, returning to London, Finch suddenly deduces that V's lair is inside the abandoned Victoria Station, which he enters. V takes Finch by surprise, resulting in a scuffle which sees Finch shoot V, and V wound Finch with a knife. V claims that he cannot be killed since he is only an idea, and that ideas are bulletproof. He's not wrong. Regardless, V is indeed mortally wounded and returns to the shadow gallery deeper within, dying in Evie's arms. Evie considers unmasking V, but decides not to, realizing that V is not an identity, but a symbol. She then assumes V's identity, donning one of his spare costumes. Finch sees the large amount of blood that V has left in his wake, and decides, or deduces that he has mortally wounded V. Occurring concurrently to this, Creedy had been pressuring Susan to appear in public, hoping to leave him exposed. Sure enough, as Susan stops to shake hands with Rose during the parade, she shoots him in the head in a vengeance for the death of her husband and the life that she has had to leave since then. Got him! Following Rose's arrest, Creedy assumes emergency leadership of the country, and Finch emerges from the subway, proclaiming V's death. Due to his LSD-induced epiphany, Finch leaves his position within the nose. The power struggle between the remaining leaders results in all other deaths. Harper betrays and kills Creedy at the behest of Helen Hayer, the wife of the Eye leader, Conrad Hayer, who had outbid Creedy for Harper's loyalty. Yeah. <laughs> it all comes down to money. It does. And Harper and Conrad uh, kill each other during a fight precipitated by Hare's discovery that his wife Helen had an affair with Harper. Ooh. Just like, shoot him while he's down, huh? Yeah. With the fate of the top government officials unknown to the public, Stone acts as the leader of the police forces um, deployed to ensure that the riots are contained, should V still be alive and make his promised public announcement. Evie appears to a crowd dressed as V, announcing the destruction of 10 Downing Street the following day and telling the crowd that they must choose what comes next. Lies of your own, or return to chains. Whereupon a general insurrection begins. Evie destroys 10 Downing Street by blowing up an underground train containing V's body in the style of an explosive Viking funeral. Baller. She abducts Stone... Uh, apparently to train him as her successor. The book ends with Finch quietly observing the chaos raging in the city and walking down an abandoned motorway when all the lights have gone out. In in 2005, a film adaptation was made by many of the same uh, filmmakers involved in the Matrix series. Which... Oh, the Wachowskis, right. The Wachowskis. In 1988, producer Joel Silver acquired the, ro- the rights to two of Alan Moore's works, V for Vendetta and Watchmen. After the release and relative success of Roadhouse, writer Hilary Hankin was brought on to flesh out the project with the initial draft. That seems like a pretty big leap. Yeah. From Roadhouse to V for Vendetta? Yeah. Roadhouse. Roadhouse. One that bears little, if any, relation to the finished product, with the inclusion of uh, overly satirical, overly satirical and surrealistic elements not present in the graphic novel, as well as the removal of much of the novel's ambiguity, uh, especially in regard to V's identity. Hmm, did this person also adapt uh, Starship Troopers? <laughs> oh, shots fired! Shit. 
Sorry, I love Starship Troopers. I know, I dude. mean, it's a great movie, but it's not like the book at all. No. no I mean, no, it just no. borrows names. But it does have Jake Busey. Yeah, it does. Yeah, the world needs more Jake Busey. And Clancy Brown. Ah, Clancy Brown. Good old Clancy. Here's one chance, Clancy, don't let me down. <laughs> <laughs> he can't push the button if you disable his hand. There you go. The Wachowskis were fans of V for Vendetta in mid-1990s before working on The Matrix, wrote a draft screenplay that closely followed the graphic novel. During the post-production of the second and third Matrix films, they revisited the screenplay and offered the director's role to James Mateague. All three were intrigued by their original story's themes and found them to be relevant to the contemporary political landscape. Upon revisiting the screenplay, the Wachowskis said about making revisions to condense and modernize the story, while at the same time attempting to preserve its integrity and themes. James McTeague cites the film The Battle of Algiers as his principal influence in preparing to film Brew for Vendetta. Moore explicitly dissociated himself with the film due to his lack of involvement in its writing or directing, as well as due to a continuing series of disputes over his film adaptations of his work. Yeah. He ended cooperation with his publisher's DC Comics after its corporate parent Warner Brothers failed to retract statements about Moore's supposed endorsement of the film. Moore said that the script contained plot holes and that it ran contrary to the themes of his original work, which was to place two political extremes, fascism and anarchism, against one another. He argues that his work has been recast as a story about current American uh, current American neoconservatism versus current American liberalism. Yeah. Per his wishes, Moore's name does not appear in the film's closing credits. Co-creator and illustrator David Lloyd supports the film adaptation, commenting that the script is very good, but that Moore would only ever be truly happy with a complete book-to-screen adaptation. You know who else would be happy with a complete book-to-screen adaptation? Oh, is it our boy? Oh, it's our boy. Yeah. Fact day. Hillary Hankin, who was the writer of Roadhouse, Roadhouse, uh, wrote a full script, which has been described as a wild, over-the-top saga, a cross between Les Mis and A Clockwork Orange. Oh, damn. Now look. A Clockwork Orange is Fight Club for people born in, like, the 50s. Fight Club for boomers. Yes. Like, one one of the big things is, like, Ladies, if a man says that his favorite movie is Fight Club, run. Yeah. <laughs> Which rings true. No, it does. Because... And that's not just... I love Fight Club. I think it's a... It's very it, well made, but... It, it's a better book. But just how... How... It, all these things, right? Fight Club, A Clockwork Orange, Rick and Morty. You're not supposed to find heroes in these stories. No, you're not. There's there's not a single likable character in no. any of them. They're, they're all fucking horrible people. Which is why I can't get into Rick and Morty. Yeah, yeah. Like, nobody watches It's Always Sunny and tries to live their lives yeah. based on the game. Yeah, you yeah know? exactly. So why try to idolize Fight Club, A Clockwork Orange, and Rick right. and Morty? Exactly. And like, even the creator of Rick and Morty has been like, no, this, this is a horrible man. Oh, 
Wow, that's kind of fucked up. You know, somebody actually said that I reminded him of, of Rick. Really? Yeah. Hmm. See, now I wasn't sure what to think of it at the time, but now I'm thinking it probably wasn't so flattering. No, Rick is an asshole. Well. <laughs> well. He's a selfish fucking alcoholic piece of shit that will use and do whatever it takes to put himself first. God damn it, Kyle! If I ever see you again, I'm gonna beat your ass. It's always Kyle, isn't it? It's always a fucking Kyle. Okay, so I'm not really going to beat your ass. Why don't I slap you in the back of the head? I'll beat your ass, Kyle. I have no stake in this fucking thing. <laughs> no skin in the game. <laughs> I don't know you, motherfucker. <laughs> um, Guy Fox had been celebrated for more than 400 years already. Although Guy was not the main conspirator, legend has it that the word Guy actually used to mean ugly and repulsive after the name of Guy Fox. Oh, damn. <laughs> so not only was it just, you know... Ripping on him, yeah. It it got you know beat down and bastardized by America, and now it's just like, oh, yeah. look at this guy. It's like things being like toilets being called Johns. Yes, yes. The word bonfire originates from the term bonefire, referring both to uh, when bones were used as fuel and the practice of burning witches and other people who were believed to be unholy, rather than burying them in consecrated ground. Wow, that is hardcore. Yeah. Would you like to have a bonfire? (laughs) Yes, actually I would. I kind of would. Uh, Despite being involved in a terrorist plot, Guy Fawkes was named the 30th greatest Brit in a poll conducted by the BBC in 2002. Now I get that, because, I mean, if you think about it... It's like they say in Harry Potter about Voldemort. No. That he did... Terrible things. Great, but terrible. Yeah. Like, great doesn't always mean good. Well, right. He, you know, it's a great act. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that, I mean, that's a fucking huge thing. He united the wizard world, but uh, in a very, very bad way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Magic Hitler. Magic, magic Hitler. Uh, v for Vendetta is filled with busy, difficult-to-shoot scenes. The fast-paced and action-packed center of the film meant thousands of cuts, fades, and transitions that had to be edited together, some all at the same time. So you might think that the most difficult to sh- difficult scene to shoot was a fight scene or explosion or a one-take. But according to the crew, the hardest scene to shoot was the domino scene, where shots of V's plan coming together are placed over the visual of him setting up hundreds of colored dominoes to fall in the formation of his symbol. The scene used 22,000 dominoes. Holy fuck. And professional dominoes assemblers were were hired to set it up. It took them over 200 hours to set up the scene, which had to be shot several times to get different angles of the dominoes falling. Oh, man. Just imagine, man. That's the thing with dominoes, too. It's like... You fucking look at them wrong and they'll fucking fall. You know what? You know what life, like, there's like a John Mulaney quote where he's like, <laughs> life tried to prepare me for quicksand, and I've never once found quicksand. <laughs> it's true. Life, just based on life, think about watching TV growing up, had had me constantly worry I was going to ruin somebody's souffle. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, totally. Think about how many times like, that happens in a show. The souffle is going to fall. Yeah. Yeah. Have, yeah. have you known anybody to ever make a fucking souffle? Uh, no. Not in person. Right. No. 
that this was this big thing. Yeah. You have to be quiet or you ruin the souffle. Laurie's like, oh, okay, fuck. And then you just never fucking come yeah. across it ever in life. Well, not once, not never. Never. So, we reached the end of another wild ride here at Toys R Us. If you like what you heard and learned, and you'd like to continue learning, consider doing the following. Leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes slash Apple Podcast. Uh, it's, it's also a symbol. <laughs> it really is. I don't know why, but definitely are not going to kill iTunes. No, nothing... I, iTunes will be around after we're dead. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's cockroach. After humanity is long gone. Yeah. iTunes will be still floating around in the ether. Yep. Just iTuning away. Just hear from a random tunnel. Yeah. Echoing back at you. Who let the dogs out? Who? 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 They're like, what? Just imagine, like, that's the first transmission an alien civilization gets from humans. Well, the players have to put those jump in. Hey. <laughs> what the fuck? I don't know. Uh, you can follow us on all social medias. We're at Toys R Us Podcast across the board. We're super active. Oh, all the time. And you can support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Toys R Us Podcast. Until next time, remember, remember the 5th of November. The Gunpowder Treason and Plot. I know of no reason why the Gunpowder Treason should ever be forgot. And remember, you will always be a Toys R Us kid. I'd like to take the time out to thank our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. So, thank you to Jeremy, Jessica, Nicole, Amy, Nicole, Nicole, Juanita, Sabrina, Shannon, and Steven. Thanks a bunch, guys. They say that there's a broken light for every heart on Broadway. They say that life's a game and then they take the board away. They give you masks and costumes and an outline of the story. Then leave you all to improvise their vicious cabaret. In no longer pretty cities, there are fingers in the kitties. There are warrants, forms and chitties and a jackboot on the stair. Sex and death and human grime in monochrome for one thing done. At least the dreams are run on time but they don't go anywhere. Facing their responsibilities either on their backs or on their knees There are ladies who just simply freeze and dare not turn away And the widows that refuse to cry but dressed in garter and bow tie Be taught to keep their legs up high in this vicious cabaret At last the 1998 show The ballet on the burning stage the documentary scene upon the fractured screen The dreadful bones crawl upon the grump of pain There's a policeman with an honest soul that a scene whose head is on the pole He grunts as he fills his bright bowl with a feeling of unease He briskly frisks the Tommy maze Our fingerprints are friends and slaves And endeavors to ignore the chains that he walks into his knees But his master in the dark the hands with brutal eye that have never brushed a lover's thigh but have squeezed a nation's throat. He hungers in his secret dreams for the harsh embrace of cruel machines. His lover is not what she seems and she will not leave a note. At last the 1998 show, the situation tragedy. Grand opera stick with soap, cliffhangers with no hope. The watercolor, the flooded gallery.
There's a murderer at the matinee There are dead men in the aisles The patrons and the actors Too uncertain if the show is through Sidon looks and with the cues Of the pose of mercy smiles At last in 1998 show The tots on no one ever sings The curfew grows flying The comedy divine The bulging eyes of puppets Screwed by the screen Oh, 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 oh,